Hey everyone, welcome to Pop Culture Pastor, where we look at movies, music, comics, and more from the perspective of faith. Welcome, everyone, to Pop Culture Pastor. I am your self-proclaimed pop culture pastor, Chris Perry. Today, we're talking about Beyonce and the prophets. He only want me when I'm not there. You better call Becky with the good hair. You better call Becky with the good hair. My guest today is Christina Booker. Uh, Christina is a friend of mine. Uh, has a PhD in English from Southern Methodist University. She's taught there at SMU and at St. Gregory's and at OU. And she currently teaches at a private high school. And actually, the way that I got to know her is is through my wife, Anna Jane. Uh, I think Anna Jane was your camp counselor way back in the day. And you guys have been friends for, for quite some time. And so Anna Jane suggested that you would be a good person to talk about uh, about Beyonce. So, Christina, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Love to so, talk about Beyonce. Yes, always. So uh, one of the things I like to do with my guests is start out with just give me a little bit of you know, your church background, you know, uh, growing up in it, maybe if there's been any shifts in recent years. So, yeah, tell me about your little bit of your faith journey. Sure. I was raised in the churches of Christ. So you and I and Anna Mm -hmm. Jane have that in common. I spent most of my life in the churches of Christ until about seven years ago when my family moved, we came back to Oklahoma city, which is where I went to university. And a lot of our friends who are church of Christ kids were attending a church here that didn't happen to be Church of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe it's a non-denominational, you know, Christian. Yeah, whatever that means. I whatever, mean, technically whatever, we are too, but. Right. <laughs> whatever those labels mean, I don't yeah. know. All I know, it's the first building I've walked into multiple times a week that doesn't have Church of Christ on the outside yeah, of it. Um, but it is different uh, in some of its practices, not different in a lot of its theology, but different in its practices Mm -hmm. um, in ways that impacted me in particular. So for example, they have a worship band with instrumental music, which my church of Christ girlies know is not something that (laughs) I grew up with. Didn't do that in new rain, the uh, singing group that you were a part of with. with Yes. Yes. That's how Anna Jane and I really (laughs) got to be friends as we were in a singing group together. That's right. But an acapella singing group. So um, the other significant difference about the church I attend here is that it affirms women in leadership roles, Mm. which also was different. Miss, we can say. Sure. Um, So, you know, I now, after years of not being able to do anything in a leadership role or being able to use instruments, I now lead worship with a worship band at at my church. So uh, one of many, we have a wonderful roster of people who lead worship, but um, Mm. so I certainly, like many people went through Uh, a small phase of doubt and what we now call deconstruction. Mm -hmm. But I would say I'm probably one of those success stories for parents and that my foundation (laughs) was laid so well 
that even when I had doubts about God, they always manifested in me praying to God to talk to him about Mm -hmm. my doubts. A very common prayer for me at that phase in my life was God, what if you're not there? And then laughing at myself about that. So um, it assumes there's someone there. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, that's uh, a thing that has come up a lot in our, in this podcast already. We have episodes about Encanto and Bo Burnham and Star Wars that a lot of them kind of center around those questions of of doubt and the issue of deconstruction is, as we call it now, even though the, the phenomenon has been around for a long time. So yeah, it's, it's a common thing. So uh, thanks for sharing all that. Uh, one of the other things I like to get a feel for is just kind of some of your earliest pop culture interests, um, big picture things that you're interested in, in popular culture. Well, relevant to what we're talking about today, one of my first pop culture loves was actually Beyonce. I was in junior high and high school in the late 90s and early 2000s, which is a very specific moment in pop music in particular. So some of my favorite memories from that period in my life were driving around in my Chevy Camaro with the top down, blasting Destiny's Child. Mm-hmm. So that was a big, and of course, you're in sync, you're Britney Spears, you're Backstreet Boys, yeah, all of the things do. that we should be embarrassed about now, but I just have to continue to love unironically. Mm-hmm. Um, so that Some was of it what holds up. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, so that was the earliest thing I remember loving in pop culture. I have always been fascinated almost in an academic sense with popular culture. Uh, Mm -hmm. I always said I would love to be one of those talking heads on, you know, like a VH1 show about, you know, I love the nineties or whatever. So like the the academic one, not just the D-list celebrity one. (laughs) I mean, I think there's a difference between being just a fan, right? A pure fan of something isn't analytical, isn't critical Mm -hmm. in the analytical sense, right? I don't mean critical, like I want to criticize it, but critical, like I want to analyze it, understand Mm -hmm. it, what's influencing what's happening here. So I always have had an analytical interest in pop culture, even things that I wasn't particularly interested in consuming. Mad Men is the perfect example. I never wanted to watch Mad Men because it was, it was too painful for me. Um, The Mm -hmm. way the women were treated, I, I just, I just could not handle it. It just wasn't for me, but I know everything about Mad Men. I know every plot point for because I read the internet during the period that Mad mm-hmm. Men was popular. And I loved the cultural writing around Mad Men. The discourse around Mad Men was so fascinating. <laughs> so good, good nerd word there. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Yeah. That's a show. Like I, I remember it was such in the zeitgeist, like, oh, you got to have an opinion about this. And I tried twice. Like I watched the first couple episodes and gave up. And then I watched, I think I watched the first season. It's like, no, not for me. Like, yeah, I, we get it. I saw Sexism what it was is doing. Cool. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I saw what it was doing, but I, I thought I can't consume it, but man, I'm interested in the way we're talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anal- overanalyzing even is, of pop culture is the name of the game here at Pop Culture Pastor. And speaking of games, we're going to start today with a game I'm calling Beyonce Lyric or Hebrew Prophet. So what I'm going to give you are quotations either from an Old Testament Hebrew prophet, you know, Isaiah, Hosea, uh, all those fun guys, or our queen Beyonce. And so I want you to 
try and figure out if you can tell where they come from. Maybe if you you know not know the biblical book, that might be kind of hard. Or if you know the song from Beyonce. And then the, we're going to see the overall point of this is, hey, do these kind of overlap, right? You wouldn't think that, you know, lyrics from uh, modern pop R&B superstar would have anything in common with Hebrew prophets from the 8th century BC, but we're going to see. So here we go. Beyonce lyric or Hebrew prophet? I was just going to say, I'm going to try not to be overly confident about this. I feel really good about this, but pride goeth before a fall. So mm-hmm. trying to keep it, keep it down. Okay. All right, here we go. My love, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Tell me. That feels like it could be from the Beyonce album Lemonade, but I don't recall it. So I'm going to say it's a Hebrew prophet. Correct. That is Micah 6.3. Okay, next. What more could I have done for you than I've done? Hmm. That one's also not jumping out at me. So I'm going to say it's a Hebrew prophet again. Okay, that is correct. That is Isaiah 5.4. I think it kind of games it where if you just know the lyrics really well, (laughs) it's like, it sounds like it. That's right. (laughs) All right, next. They don't love you like I love you. Oh, this you know that I know. This is Beyonce from the song Hold Up from the Lemonade album. Yes. There you go. That's correct. Okay. Next, you have abandoned me, the spring of living water. You have dug wells, broken wells that can't hold water. This has to be a Hebrew prophet. I was going to try to hazard a guess as to which one, <laughs> but I oh, I don't know if I can. Okay, that's correct. That is Jeremiah 2.13. I was going to say Jeremiah, hey, she says now, so you, you don't go. have see, to I believe should, me. Yeah, I made you right. give the actual book. Uh, let's see if make it harder. Okay. You and me could make it rain now. You and me could stop this love drought. Yes, you almost had me with the first half, but once you got to love drought, I knew that was a Beyonce lyric. That's I put the lyric, the title of the song in there. So yeah. yes, <laughs> and I didn't go good. the next line. You were good line. to me. Yes. Yeah, the next line. Am I not thirsty enough? Which I don't. I don't remember any prophets saying that or God saying that. Yes. <laughs> Am I not thirsty enough for you? There might be like, in the message, maybe. Sure. Say that. <laughs> All right. Uh, Next, what am I going to do with you? Your love's like a morning cloud, like the dew that vanishes quickly. That's a Hebrew prophet. Okay, that is, yes, Hosea 6.4. And then our last last lyric or quote, you only want me when I'm not there. I do know that this is from our queen Beyonce, from her song, Sorry. Sorry. So, yes, not sorry. I think you got uh, 100%. Very good. Top I love when confidence is professor. accurate. Yes. Yes. Okay. So the point of that game was not to like actually try and trick you. It was to help all of us to hear. It is a lot of it is really similar. Right? Again, like if you know the lyrics to Beyonce, or I guess if you have the entire Hebrew Bible memorized, which spoiler, I don't, even though maybe I should. Um <laughs> You're going to know kind of, okay, that I think I know which one it is, but right, they're, they're not actually that far apart. And so that's really the, the genesis of this idea, uh, Bible pun intended, uh, because uh, a while back I was preaching through the prophetic books, uh, mostly going through Jeremiah. And it was around the same time that Lemonade had, had been released. And so I was, you know, in, in my office, I was 
you know, studying in, in these prophetic books. And then, uh, you know, I had, you know, on my headphones, Lemonade. And I just like, wait a second, these are doing the exact same thing. Sometimes the language was, was similar. It was uh, that Jeremiah passage, uh, Jeremiah 2, about, you know, the, the broken cisterns, right? Like you're digging these wells to hold water and it doesn't hold water when I'm a spring of living water. And then the idea of, you know, we're in this love drought and we can make it rain. Um, right? Like it's, it's really saying the same thing. It's even the same metaphor, right? And as we're going to talk about today, both the prophets and Beyonce in this album, Lemonade, that we're looking at, they kind of have the same overall goal. Uh, they're dealing with similar problems and trying to do similar things to resolve those problems. So since you, uh, I'm calling you in here as our Beyonce expert, I want to let you give us some background on Beyonce. You already mentioned Destiny's Child, but just a little bit of you know who she is and why she's so important in the pop culture landscape. Sure. And I think it's important for us to go over the background because Lemonade, our focus, is later in Beyonce's career. It represents kind of a, a culmination and a, and a coming into maturity that she reaches later in her career and in her personal life. So it's good to remember where she came from. Um, mm -hmm. So Beyonce grew up in Texas, famously comes from a family that early on dedicated their family life to the careers of their children before there was Kris Jenner, the mom of the Kardashians, who is the, you know, the famous mom manager, the momager. Beyonce's father early on quit his job to manage the career of his two daughters. Um, when Beyonce was younger, she was in some girl groups. They famously went on Star Search and Lost, one of her mm -hmm. earliest girl groups. Um, eventually, those various girl groups turned into a group called Destiny's Child. That's for women, you know, kind of a, a girl answer to a boy band. But Beyonce, of course, was always the star, right? She was the Justin Timberlake of Destiny's Child. Mm -hmm. So they release a couple of albums. They become incredibly popular. Um, there is kind of drama behind the scenes. Different members are coming and going. Um, but Destiny's Child becomes a cultural force in this sort of late 90s pop music. So as Destiny's Child still exists, Beyonce ends up releasing a solo album. So mm -hmm. she releases some solo albums. She has a lot of kind of gossip and popularity behind her because she very privately, but well known to all, like best kept secret, is involved romantically with Jay-Z. Her first sort of foray as a solo artist was that she was a featured singer on a song with Jay-Z and the song was 03 Bonnie and Clyde. So it was about two people in a romantic relationship. So everyone knew that the two of them were involved on her first solo album. He has verses on several of the songs, but Beyonce is infamously very, very private. She locks down what she is going to let people know about her. So while knowing that she was involved with Jay-Z was good for her image and good for her career, we got very little information or detail about that. I mentioned that now because that's going to become relevant right. to our discussion yeah, she, later. She controls her narrative. Yes. Which is very, very hard much. to do these days, but yes. she is. Well, that's one of the reasons we call her the queen because she that's can do right. that. 
Yes. So she continues through the early aughts to release solo albums, um, wins a lot of Grammys, has a lot of critical success, has a lot of commercial success. She starts starring in films, kind of develops a career as an actress. Um, she is in the movie Dream Girls, sort of makes her Oscar run with this role in the movie Dream Girls. So her career is kind of progressing along. She marries Jay-Z, I believe in 2008. Again, we sort of find out about it later when she wants us to find out about it. Um, so she is sort of in a great place artistically, you know, financially in her interpersonal life. Um, and then we hit 2016, which as Americans, 2016 means a lot of things to us. We have a lot of associations with 2016. Um, what's relevant for our little Beyonce timeline is that in 2016, Beyonce is a guest performer at the Super Bowl. I think it was the Bruno Mars. So Maybe, for this yeah. performance, right before this performance, she releases a single and a video for that single called Formation. And she is going to perform this single at the Super Bowl. And this Super Bowl performance of this single, she and her dancers are all dressed like members of the Black Panther Party. And they're singing this song, Formation. And this is a real step forward or a real change in direction for Beyonce's music. Before this, she has been releasing very mainstream commercial pop music, mm -hmm. R&B influenced. Um, she often will have rappers on her songs, but it's very mainstream. Formation is something different entirely. It's less concerned about being mainstream, about being consumable for a sort of general we can say it white audience. Mm -hmm. um, and people notice this, this became such a conversation around this song that SNL actually did a skit about it. Yeah, I, I remember that. It was like the theme was, there's all these white women like, oh my goodness, Beyonce is black. Like yes. if you, you, They didn't realize it until this moment. So that's a it's lot about how we understand race and what we take for granted and yeah, the, the sketch is pitched as a sort of post-apocalyptic scenario where all these white people are calling their loved ones as if they're in some sort of, you know, disaster, some sort of scary situation. Um, and over and over again, Beyonce is black, is they're saying, that, you know, they're just <laughs> incredulous no. that this is new information to mm -hmm. them. Why did and nobody I, tell me? That's right. And that's what the the skit is making fun of a little bit is, of course, Beyonce was always black. Right. Um, but this idea of it didn't seem real to this audience until it was placed in front of them. Right. Um, until something mainstream, something that wasn't cordoned off to a separate facet of culture, but something that was launched directly into the mainstream, directly at them. And it wasn't really concerned with a white audience as its primary audience. Um, so this idea that we are just now realizing something that has always been true um, is a big part of the conversation around that single formation, which was the lead single for the album Lemonade, which I know we're going to talk about a lot more. So since Lemonade, uh, her cultural power has 
only increased. She is one of the most awarded artists in history at the Grammys. She headlined the Coachella Music Festival um, for two weekends. Yes, yes, Baychella. <laughs> you know, one of the most successful outings an artist has ever had at Baychella. At Baychella, I'm just going to call it no, Baychella. It, it it's not Coachella yeah, it's just, anymore. It is forever. Yes. Now. Yes, which that concert was recorded and became a film on Netflix that Beyonce had complete control over. She has been able to position herself as a kind of cultural producer. She's no longer just a singer. When she was part of the remake of The Lion King at Disney, not only did she produce and coordinate an entire album of artists about the Black experience that went alongside The Lion King, she then directed that as a short film that was released on Disney Plus called Black is King. So another example of her producing something right in mainstream culture that is kind of blowing up our preconceptions about mm-hmm. who that mainstream audience is for yeah. and, and, and she, centering her, her own blackness. Right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's not a neutral thing. That's not just a background thing. That's essential to who she is. Yes. Well, and people may notice the coincidence, not a coincidence that uh, something big is happening the day after this podcast comes out. She has a new album coming out tomorrow, July 29th called Renaissance. Or is it Act One Renaissance, which implies there might be an Act Two soon. So we're very excited about that. But as you said, we're going to focus on this album Lemonade from 2016 and the history that goes goes into that album and then bring that back as we think about how does that connect with um, those Hebrew prophets that we mentioned earlier, right? We're not forgetting about them. I know there's probably some people like, okay, get past Beyonce, but (laughs) sorry, that's that's what we're doing here today. Yeah. um, You know, and during this time, she was very, as, as we've said, you know, she's in control of the story. She's very private about things and you know it we didn't know much about this album she's she's one of the i mean she almost kind of invented the idea of like surprise releasing albums i think it was her previous album the self-titled beyonce where she's like hey i'm dropping this tomorrow here you go Um, and that's become a thing i think she actually is responsible for changing the day that music is released it used to always come out on tuesdays and now it's fridays because she put an album out on friday because so where go. Beyonce goes, the rest yes, of us follow. Everyone follows. Yes. So give us a little bit of background specifically on what was happening that led to uh, Lemonade. Sure. And a lot of this we only know in hindsight after the album was released and after she gave us just little bits of information to confirm what the album seemed to imply. So as you said, she released Lemonade all at once with a visual album. I remember the night it premiered on HBO. (laughs) I had to borrow someone's HBO logins. Yes, I mean, someone else had to take care of the baby because mama was busy because Beyonce (laughs) was on. So the album Lemonade and the accompanying visual album are really the story of her husband Jay-Z's infidelity and the damage that it did to their relationship, the work they did to eventually reconcile um, and kind of where their family 
landed at the end of that very, very long process. So the reason the album is called Lemonade is because the album is the lemonade that she made out of the lemons of the struggles in her personal life. And there's actually a moment in case listeners and viewers don't put that together. There's actually a moment in a song at the end where you hear a clip. So this is Jay-Z's grandmother, Hattie White, who says, I had my ups and downs, but I always find the inner strength to pull myself up. I was served lemons, but I made lemonade. So in, in case in case we didn't get that, Beyonce yeah. put that in there for us. So the the album tells a story. The songs move through a trajectory that begins with suspicion um, and then sort of confirmation and grief and anger um, and heartbreak and what do you do with yourself then? And then you're processing it. Um, There's a song in the middle called Daddy Lessons where she is talking about how her father also was unfaithful to her mother, um, setting up some themes about generational trauma and the way that impacts families. Specifically in the album, she is drawing on the generational trauma of Black American families specifically. Um, And then you move toward kind of the back half of the album toward her extending forgiveness, essentially. I don't think there's a lot in the album about Jay-Z, and you can, you can kind of give me mm-hmm. your perspective on that. Um, it's very much presented as her coming to a place that she's willing to extend forgiveness and mercy. Um, and then by the end, they come back together. Um, and then Formation is the last song on the album. And it's this sort of celebration of Black womanhood at the end of the album. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it almost doesn't seem like it fits, right? And so that's right. the the themes of the album are more than just, oh, my husband cheated on me. I want to tell all about it right it's Mm -hmm. there's a bigger scope and like you said it's dealing with how like things like systemic racism affect relationships and like you said the fan the generational the family trauma of infidelity we're we often are trained to think of things in terms of just individual actions and i mean she's obviously holding him accountable but Mm -hmm. seeing that there are other forces at work that you know led him to his choices and um yeah it's it's all connected and the, the visual album makes that even more clear with a lot of the imagery, right? The, the things filmed on plantations. Mm-hmm. And so she's trying to, yeah, pull all of this together, right? So what right. at first glance seems like just a, uh, an angry spouse album is she's doing a lot more than that. Right. Uh, and if you want to dig deeper into the album specifically, we're going to do it some here. Uh, I want to recommend a, a podcast called Dissect, where in, uh, I think it's season six, they go song by song, uh, like lyric by lyric. That's kind of what this this guy does and analyzes the entire album and the visual album. So if you really want to dig into that, uh, I definitely recommend, uh, it's one of my favorite podcasts. He's done stuff on Kendrick Lamar and and others that are really great. So check out the Dissect podcast. If you want more, go really in depth on this album. Yeah, and I might, since we're plugging, if I can add one to you, Chris. um, But we're here to do. That's right. I think it's important to acknowledge that neither you nor I are black women. So, mm-hmm. so our conversation about this is 
limited or impacted in particular ways by that. Um, so I think it's appropriate for us to offer other voices as you're doing here that might be helpful. Um, the one that I really want to recommend, I'm not sure you know um, Austin Channing Brown, her book, I'm Still Here, mm -hmm. that is about um, the Black experience, I think particularly of American Christianity and the American church, um, but a, a way of thinking through how this it's an embodied experience right in the same way that lemonade is an embodied album made by a black woman um having those voices in the conversation i think are really helpful yeah yeah so uh, i appreciate you pointing that out right i'm not we're not trying to speak for this the black experience or a black woman's experience we're trying to just present what she's trying to present and make make some connections with scripture with the hebrew prophets so as, as we move into this kind of side of the conversation, right, we're going to focus on, we focus on her, we want to focus on the prophets, and then we can bring them together. What is the nature of, of prophecy in scripture? You know, when you hear the word prophet or prophecy, pop culture itself has kind of trained us to think in terms of predicting the future, right? So like Harry Potter, you have the prophecy about who's going to be uh, the chosen one. Um, and it's, it's all over the place. But most of the time, there are there are times when the prophets are, are predicting things in a sense, but for the most part, when we think about prophets and prophecy in scripture, it's not just prediction. It's, it's doing something more than that. Uh, to quote uh, the, the scholar and writer Luke Timothy Johnson, says the meaning of prophecy is not speaking beforehand, as in prediction, but speaking for, as in representation. Right? The prophet is a representative of God. And so they're not just saying, oh, God told me this is what he's going to do. It's this is what God wants. Right? That's the, kind of the theme that I've used when I've preached on it. Right? God wants you, wants this group of people to live in this way. Uh, and so there's both a, a positive and a negative side to that. Uh, and very often what they're doing and the way it functions predictively is saying, if you keep doing this, here's what's going to happen. The, the prophet's job is to see where things are going. I mean, to, to see the writing on the wall, to quote uh, an image from a prophetic book. And so like the writer Walter Brueggemann talks about the prophetic imagination. Right? Prophets are those who can imagine, you know, the, the way forward if we continue on this course. And then they can also imagine a more hopeful future and help us imagine what it would take to get there, right? What kind of world do you want to live in? They're often presenting different options. And when they're hopeful, it's here's this positive world that we could have and God will bring if we can live towards that. Uh, and also, here's all the stuff that's going to happen to you if you keep going down this course, which is usually about injustice and unfaithfulness. And so that, that idea of unfaithfulness obviously connects with, with Lemonade. And when you read the prophets, one of the most common metaphors they use is adultery as a metaphor for idolatry, right? So it's spiritual unfaithfulness. Uh, they're worshiping other gods. And sometimes the rejection of, of Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel, a lot of times it's, it's trying to have both, right? So you're worshiping Yahweh and Asherah or Yahweh and Baal. And coincidentally, that's where we get the, the title of this episode. Better call Baal with the good hair is a reference to the great line. Better call Becky with the good hair that she says to, to Jay Z and in, uh, in Sorry at the end there. 
And just a little Bible nerd thing, uh, the name of this Canaanite deity is not Baal, as uh, we often heard it growing up. It's, it's Baal. There's an apostrophe in the middle of it. So there you go. Impress your friends with that uh, pedantic knowledge. Now, you know, as we think about the prophets and, and using them today and reflecting on them, I think it is necessary to point out the times where there's problematic gender language. So, you know, all the prophets, at least that have scripture assigned to them, they're men. There are female prophets, but we don't have any works by them. And so these men are speaking for a God who is presented as male. I would say that's metaphorical, but that's the way that they're speaking of of God. And so in this metaphor of adultery, God, Yahweh is the husband, Israel is uh, the unfaithful wife. And so you find a lot of language of Israel as a whore or prostitute. And so there's some patriarchal power dynamics going into that. Uh, and there's some, you know, pretty difficult passages. Uh, there's a passage in Ezekiel, especially where it talks about, you know, kind of publicly shaming the woman, right, as Israel lifting your skirts over her heads in front of everybody, right? Like, okay, there's there's some problematic stuff there. I mean, as a woman, <laughs> I would assume you would have some reactions to that. Those are difficult passages to read. I think any woman would tell you that if you stop and think about it, the more you think about it, the more it unravels, the more difficult it becomes. Um, sometimes people will try to tell you Oh, well, that's how it was back then. They mm. use that metaphor because that, you know, made sense to them back then. And obviously one thing that Lemonade points us to, well, that we all know instinctively is that that's not a back then, right? Patriarchy is not back then. We still yep. live under it. Oh, yeah. um, and so I've always found that explanation unsatisfying, mm -hmm. um, maybe mm -hmm. a little intellectually dishonest. Yeah, but um, but I think what's so powerful about Lemonade is the way it flips that script on its head. Right. Um, I was even thinking as you were talking about the Becky line, the incredible assertion of power in calling this other woman Becky, right? That she had, this is the name that she chooses. Yeah. And, you know, it's not Rebecca, it's Becky. It's, it's yeah. this very particular um, use of language to demean, right? To, to say, here are your two options, right? As you talked about the two futures that prophecy often shows you and allows you to choose between, what Beyonce is doing in that song is saying, here am I, right? Here's the woman that you have. And here's this other woman, this Becky <laughs> that is your other option. And even no offense to any Beckys out there who are listeners. We do love you. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, you can see yes. what she's doing. Yes. Because that has become now, I think my noticing of that shows the power that this has had culturally, because after this album came out, um, this sort of predates Karen, when you think about the way we use Karen today to mm -hmm. mean a very particular thing. And and again, no insults to any Karens, right? I know, I know some, some great Karens. Karens. Yeah, I, I, we love some Karens. Um, but the way that language can be used, the way that both of those names now mean something 
um, have a connotation that is separate from any individual person who actually has that name. Those names have taken on a power of their own culturally. And it's a good shorthand for what Beyonce's doing in the album. It's very much an assertion of power because she is telling a story from her personal life. So she's giving us a little bit of something personal, which her fan base was always clamoring for, but it's still art. It's still a narrative that's being constructed in a particular way for a particular reason. Um, And so that tension between how much personal truth is she telling versus how much cultural truth is she telling Mm -hmm. that she's giving us this sort of um, cultural narrative interwoven with this or using a personal narrative to give us this larger cultural narrative. And I think that's why the experience of the album is so powerful. Anyone who has experienced infidelity in a relationship will recognize so much of what's going on in that album emotionally that is so raw and so specific to that Mm -hmm. experience so you know we're talking about power dynamics and you know it's interesting with beyonce i mean you could make you could argue in that relationship who's more powerful her or jay-z so as you know influential and powerful as jay-z is and as much as he changed the rap game i think it's you can make a pretty good case that beyonce at least especially by 2016 has an even bigger cultural influence. So she's the the woman is in more of a position of power, or at least they're they're pretty equal. But when you go back to scripture, right, we were talking about how you know it's that gender gendered language can be problematic sometimes, right? There's no question, right? Yahweh the Lord is more powerful. And so you have this all-powerful husband who is shaming his less powerful wife. Right. So the the there's such an imbalance in the power dynamic that when he is calling her out and saying he's going to do these things feels like there's maybe a better way to say that. So, you know, the overall aim here, both in lemonade and in scripture is toward justice. Justice is such a common concern in the prophets. That's what they call the people out for, for not caring for the oppressed, the fatherless, the, uh, the outsider, the alien, the widow, the immigrant, Right. That's that's one of the main things they're judged for, along with idolatry. And often those those two things go together. Right. You're worshiping the God of of wealth. And so that leads you to not care for the poor. But we want to think about the nature of justice and what the aims of it are. So in in a lot of modern conversations, there's a, a difference between retributive justice and restorative justice. And, you know, justice really is about making things right in the Hebrew Bible and even in Hebrew language, righteousness is synonymous with justice. They very often use those terms interchangeably or they'll they'll link the two of them. Uh, And so justice uh, is about doing what's just for other people and righteousness is about doing right by other people. It's not just following these rules and making sure that you are right. That, that tends to be the way in you know, modern Western world, we, we define righteousness or justice, just do what the laws say. But biblical justice and righteousness are a little bit deeper than that. And, but going to this uh, distinction between retributive justice and restorative justice, one of the big differences is who, 
what they're trying to do. And retributive justice is trying to satisfy the one who is offended, whereas re restorative justice is concerned with correcting the offender. Right. So in the first model, if we're you know applying this to God, well, you offended God with your sin, and so God needs to be satisfied. Is that the focus, or is the focus on you have done something harmful, and you need to be restored and corrected, right? And you can find plenty of Christian voices even now that will focus on the idea of God wants that satisfaction. And I'm going to argue, and you know, I won't make take all the time to make my theological case, that God does not need to be satisfied. God does not need blood in order to forgive. God wants to forgive. God is merciful and loving. And so however we understand what the prophets are doing, it has to fit into that, that bigger picture, that idea of, of God's nature. But again, you think about in our own culture and you know, connect this with Beyonce's experience, the, especially the Black experience that she's speaking to, I think it's pretty easy to say that the American justice system is focused more on retribution than restoration. I'm sure you've done a lot of this research as, as well of how our models of justice have affected the black population. So we don't have time to go into all of that here either. This is a pop culture podcast, but there are plenty of sources that talk about the inequalities in the application of justice, depending on one's, one's race. And mm -hmm. again, just the way that so much of our system works is about satisfying those who are offended and doesn't, even though we call it the corrections department, correction is not really a, a main focus. And I've, I've done prison ministry and I see that that is not what they care about. And people end up in these cycles of being in and out of jail. And that's actually kind of how the system is designed in some ways. And as Plenty of research shows that affects some populations more than others. And I would recommend there, there's that wonderful Netflix documentary, The 13th, if people are interested in learning more about that. Yeah. Or uh, The New Jim Crow is a mm. book that also discusses the same same ideas. Because this is part of what uh, Beyonce is trying to pull in as she's thinking about you know wanting justice in her relationship with her husband that is not disconnected from the lack of justice that uh, her people have experienced. And, you know, we see in the prophets this, right, it's moving towards justice, but there's a flow towards that. And lemonade mirrors that flow because they both often start from a place of, of anger. I can't believe you did this to me. They're, they're blaming the partner for what they did. You know, there's some choice lyrics I would love to share on here, but I'm trying to avoid the explicit rating. That's of, right. <laughs> uh, the video where she's got the baseball bat and the yellow dress, right? Like, I mean, that's that's basically what the prophets are are doing to Israel. They're they're, they're taking the baseball bat to their stuff too. Uh, but then you see, you know, this move from blaming the partner to a little more self reflection of saying, like, okay, did I do something wrong? Right? We heard that even in those prophetic quotes at the very beginning, right? What what more could I have done for you? How have I burdened you? Right? That's that's God speaking through Micah. Right? So it's like. It's like, I know I didn't do anything wrong, but what, what did you see wrong in me that led you to do this? And so that leads to this kind of place of, of sadness. And so you hear that on the album, on that song, like Love Drought that we talked about earlier. So finally, it moves towards though, reconciliation, right? That is the ultimate goal of, in the prophets, it's, you know, I, even after all these, you know, 
threats and you know what you make of those can be complicated but the prophet's pretty much always in on this note of but even after that right even after you know you're going to you're going to go into exile or something i am going to bring you back right it it seems like god is done with them but god's not right so the ultimate goal is to restore the relationship if it were just retributive then the punishment would be the last word but but it's not and so, you know, a phrase that I've heard so much that I don't remember where I first heard it is that prophets afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. And very often it comes in that order that they have to call out people that are too comfortable with their own injustice and the people that they're hurting. And then once after you've kind of ripped into them a little bit, then there is there's words of comfort of, OK, uh, you know, we needed to say this. This needed to be brought out. But that's not the end of, of the relationship. That makes me think of um, in the most ripping into him song on the album, which I would say is the third song, which is called Don't Hurt Yourself, the one with Jack White. That's the really mm -hmm. angry kind of rock inflected song. Um, at the very end of it, she says, you know, I give you life. If you try this again, you'll lose your wife. And I was always really struck by that, that even in the heat of her anger, she still identifies herself as his wife. And it's not, you have lost me. It's if you continue in this behavior, the, the end result will be that you'll lose me. But there's that opening there for forgiveness and reconciliation. Like that's foreshadowed way mm -hmm. back um, at her most rage filled moment. She still is thinking in terms of reconciliation. Right. Right. It, it all goes together. It's not like I'm just gonna be angry. And then also, oh, well, I didn't mean that. And no, it's, it's purposeful, right? Mm -hmm. She's purposeful in the language that she chooses and when and why. And I think the prophets are as well. And actually, I want us to hear a little bit of that song because I think it uh, it really does capture something. We're like I said, we're going to skip some of the very intense language, as fun as it is. That honestly is not that far off from what is said in the prophets. So let's hear a little bit about of that song and see how it connects to uh, the idea of the wrath of God, as we hear a little bit of the wrath of Beyonce. When you hurt me, you hurt yourself. Right? That's what she says. Uh, when you do these things to me, you're actually affecting yourself somehow, which is actually very much in line with the uh, scriptural idea of the wrath of God. Now, when you hear that phrase, and a lot of people misuse that phrase to just think, oh, well, God's just losing it and getting angry. Uh, that's not what the wrath of God is actually about. Uh, Romans 1, I think, is the best explanation of this, and it's when God gives people up to their own desires. Right? God gives them over. And so it's God basically saying like, okay, you want this? Here you go. Have fun with that. And as parents, we kind of get that, right? Where there's kids that are like, I don't want to be part of this family anymore. It's like, okay, bye. You know, <laughs> and obviously if we're good parents, we don't actually kick them out of the house. But, you know, sometimes you, you can let them like 
go outside for a minute and then they realize, oh, I don't actually want this thing that I said I wanted. It's actually hurting me. And so it's kind of just, it's natural consequences. It's the way God has set things up to work. And so in the prophets, it's like saying, okay, you want to worship Babylon's gods? Then why don't you go live in Babylon for a while? Right? You want to worship these other gods that depend on human sacrifice? You're going to sacrifice what you want. And so that is what she's saying there. When you hurt me, you hurt yourself. And yet, as she says at the end of that, when you love me, you love yourself, right? So how you treat others is a reflection on how you see yourself. And they're, they're always intimately connected. Along with that, we kind of talked already some about, you know, punishment versus discipline and, and to bring it back to parenting. I mean, what do you do when your kids act in um, harmful ways, Either things that harm themselves or things that maybe are harming their siblings or others? Uh, why? Do, what do you do? Why do you do it? What are your goals with that kind of discipline? I think it's important to remember that love is based on helping someone move toward their best good. Cause that's what God's love is for us. Mm -hmm. um, and so I try to, with my children, think about how do I help them progress toward or move toward what is their best good or their highest good. And often the best way to do that is what you've already mentioned, natural consequences. I've taught my two little girls that, you know, everything has an outcome, right? Everything mm -hmm. you do has some sort of outcome. It may be positive. It may be negative. Sometimes you can control whether it's positive or negative, and sometimes mm -hmm. you can't, but when it is within your control, you can learn when I make this choice, it has this positive outcome. And when I make this choice, it has this negative outcome. But my goal is always to model for them what God's love for them looks like. Um, you mentioned that we tend to think of wrath in a way that is very different from what God is actually doing in the scripture. And I think it's because so many people had parents that that showed them that very sort of negative, um, uncontrolled, unrestrained, very self-serving version of wrath, which I understand and have a lot of empathy for and definitely have moments of that myself because parenting is hard. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when you as a parent through constant prayer can try to stay in a place where I remember my mother, who is herself a force of nature, would always say, every moment, I'm just trying to show you God's love for you. I'm just trying to teach you something about God's love for you or show you God's love for you. And discipline works within that because I'm always thinking, what are my two daughters learning about God from the way that I interact with them? Um, and so showing them and letting them experience and learn when I, you know, I have my own will that I want to exercise, which I want to empower them to exercise their own will, and then hopefully have given them the tools to use their own will to produce positive outcomes for themselves, because that's what loving relationships do in the same way in a marriage relationship, as Beyonce is talking about in Lemonade, um, you know, you don't confront someone else's infidelity by trying to control them because it only makes it worse right. in the same way that parents who squeeze, squeeze, squeeze on their children often find them slipping through their fingers that much more easily. Um, and so 
in the album, she's trying to show, you know, go off, right. Go, go do you go call Becky, but like, let's look at what the positive and negative is going to be here because that's what, I mean, to put it in a, in a, in the pastor part right, of pop culture pastor, that's what godly love does is it mm-hmm. says you have a will, um, and you get to exercise that will. And my job as your, whether it's your pastor, your partner, your parent, right. Whatever role you have, when we love one another with that kind of love, we're trying to draw one another toward good. Yeah. Right. God's love is not controlling. God's love is, yeah, as you said, trying to draw others in. It's it's attractional in that sense. Um, but yeah, we we make the mistake of thinking, well, God is different, right? So God does control and God just uses rules and God just uses anger. Uh, I mean, Jesus is the one who tells us, well, what would you do as a parent, right? This is in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't you know God is so much better than that? And yet we so often imagine that God's discipline is so much worse than what mm-hmm. like the average uh, not even a good parent, just like an average parent would do, right? It's not right for us to to punish out of anger, to like satisfy ourselves. So why would it be okay for God to do that? Right? There has to be consistency there. And so and that doesn't that doesn't come from nowhere. I'm thinking of my eight year old who has said to me before, "Mom, when I read the Bible, it just makes me feel bad. Like everything I do is wrong because mm-hmm. everything in the Bible is about." what I'm doing wrong. Um, and so you can see where that seed can get planted, um, you know, in, in a child, in a young Christian, or even in someone who, you know, doesn't have a framework or maybe who hasn't been taught that God's central characteristic is love, right? That that is his mm-hmm. definitionally, that that's what he is. Um, and so you have to read the Bible through the lens of God's love and trying to teach a child that actually is really difficult, right? That's a really mature concept to try to understand. God's not giving you a list of rules that he will punish you for not following. God is trying to draw you toward good. And he's saying, oh man, when you do this, this is usually what happens. But when you do this, this is usually what happens. And And so it takes a shift in the reader or, you know, for my little girl in in the child to say, you know, oh, you're not just a mean mommy who won't let me eat candy every moment of my life. Mm -hmm. Um, But instead, you are trying to show me how to move toward what is best for me. And that can sound like, no, you can't have that Twix bar. No, you can't have that Skittles. No, you can't have that. Or it can be, let's, let's talk about what's for your good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's, that's again, how we should understand what the prophets are doing. It's, this is aimed towards good. And again, some of the passages, some of the language can sometimes be difficult. And I think we do need to wrestle with those. And you think about them as being in their context and, you know, that we understand who God is best through Christ. And even the new Testament will say, you know, the prophets, you know, they saw in part and yet they're still seeing something of who God is. And so that's where we want to focus on that, that Christ-like, redemptive, restorative kind of love, right? We do still want justice. We want things to be made right. And you can't do that unless you talk about what was wrong. And I mean, that's, again, that's lemonade, right? She ultimately, she wants reconciliation. That is the goal. Now, the means of that goal, part of it includes you know, airing the dirty laundry and saying some pretty 
intense things about what might happen if he continues on this course. But that's not all that she wants, right? That's that's too simplistic. That is just the retributive side that I wouldn't even say is really just, right? It's just punishment. Whereas, you know, and again, like we're kind of mixing metaphors here of parenting and marriage, and they don't obviously work the same because there right. is a <laughs> difference in power in parents and kids as, you know, and difference in maturity. Whereas in a in a marriage, if you're making those kind of assumptions, that's uh, probably not going to work out too well. That's a whole other um, so, podcast. Yeah, we can uh, we can you know apply both in our relationship with God, um, but either way, it's what does God want? Uh, what does God want when it comes to justice? God, what does God want when it comes to discipline in this life, even in the next? Right? I think it always should be oriented not towards just punishment. Right? You broke this divine law, and so this is what I've said is going to happen to you. It's, I want you to grow. I want you to learn to do better. I want you to act with kindness and love and to make peace. And so whatever is going to do that, sometimes it takes, you know, harsh language if people are really being hurtful, uh, but that's what God is trying to do. And so, you know, as we're wrapping up this conversation, uh, I think of, you know, one of the best summaries of what God was doing through Christ and is again, a hint of what <laughs> Beyonce is trying to do in this uh, comes from second uh, Corinthians chapter five, starting verse 18, where Paul is talking about how we, how we look at Christ, how we look at uh, creation and how we look at ourselves and all this. And he says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them, but entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. You know, a, a little, it, it seems small, but we have to hear what he's saying specifically there that God is reconciling us to God's own self, right? That means we're the ones that are wrong. We're the, actually the ones that are offended by God, that are against God, and God is, is reconciling us. Right, God is not reconciling Himself to us as if God is the one that has the problem. It's we're living in a ways that that are hurtful to ourselves, to others, to God, and God is trying to to fix that to help us see. No, this isn't who you're meant to be. Um, right, God is not the one that needs to be satisfied. We are the ones that need to be reconciled, and so that's what God has done through Christ. And then He gives that ministry to us. So you know, whatever that looks like, and whatever circumstances you find yourself that's our ministry to do the work of reconciliation and this album i think is an example of that it's not just reconciliation is not just saying like oh well it doesn't matter it's fine let's just move on right that when especially you're talking about something like infidelity that don't work uh, it's it's got to be it's not an easy process right but this is what we're called to this is the ministry that that all of us are given uh, to work towards reconciliation. And so sometimes that means speaking the harsh truths, but its goal is always to bring back together. Um, that's what God did for us. And that's what God calls us to. Well, as we're wrapping up today, uh, we always end with our pop culture consolations and desolations. This is a version of uh, the spiritual practice that comes from Ignatius of Loyola, where we look at where the spirit is moving in our life, what is giving us life or something that maybe is, is not giving life. 
So we're taking this very important, impactful spiritual practice and using it to just talk about um, pop culture recommendations. So, uh, Christina, do you have a pop culture consolation for us today? Something that's been giving you life or something you want to recommend? I do. And I hope I'm not stepping on your toes because this is somewhat comic book related. Hey, um, I love it. But recently, um, Comic-Con has been ha- happening and they released a trailer for the sequel to Black Panther called Wakanda Forever. And I am a Marvel girly. I love the MCU. I don't have any background in the comics, but I love the MCU. So Black Panther is, in my opinion, the superior MCU film of my top three. It is number one. Um, And of course, the star of the film, Chadwick Boseman, died a few years ago, Mm -hmm. and it was really up in the air what was going to happen with this franchise. I think there was a lot of anticipation for this film. So they dropped the trailer, and it is just stunning. I I mean, Mm -hmm. I just just wept the first time I saw it. Um, It very much centers the women in that particular story. Um, The the beginning of it is the song, No Woman, No Cry. Mm -hmm. Um, And you see everyone in Wakanda mourning for the death of T'Challa, but particularly his mother, his sister, his love interest. Um, And then it transitions into a much more um, celebratory and even like, trying to think of a word, almost even triumphant by the end of it. Um, And so it, it was just this very cathartic moment of, you know, it's so terrible that Chadwick Boseman is gone. It's heartbreaking. Um, but I can see that Ryan Coogler, the director, is going to do something just incredible with this yeah. film. And it comes out in November, and I am so excited. So that was something recently that just, I texted it to everyone as soon as it came <laughs> out. So, Yes, I, I share your excitement for that. Uh, obviously, if you've listened to this podcast, I've talked about uh, the MCU and, and Marvel Comics quite a bit already. Yes. So yeah, it, like you said, there's like, what are they going to do? It already had, you know, such expectations before he passed and and how they're going to handle that. So yeah, it's very exciting. And then as a nerd to see Namor, uh, the King of Atlantis show up and going to be uh, the antagonist. And, and, you know, we don't actually know what the story is because it's really just kind of a teaser, but yeah, how they're going to deal with that collective grief. Uh, it's, I think it's going to be really interesting to see what they do with that and maybe helping a society deal with its collective grief is, is a movie that we need right now uh, Mm -hmm. for all the things that are happening in the world. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Um, So, uh, well, keeping with the, the comic book, uh, focus, uh, my consolation this week is that I actually have been reading a lot of comic books. I had some time where I was taking care of my, my father-in-law and just kind of needed to be at the house, but I had time to read. And so I was catching up on some X-Men comics. Um, you know, X-Men has always been kind of my favorite team um, where I first started reading comics and I, and for a while and in recent years, they haven't really been that good or interesting. And then a few years ago, they made this big paradigm shift uh, where they kind of create their own nation and their own culture. And so that's really created some really interesting opportunities to tell different sort of stories. And so just some series have been looking at different issues. One uh, it's called Immortal X-Men, and it's really just like the politics of this new nation and their government, and they all have superpowers. And then another one is called X-Men Red, uh, where the mutants have uh, basically uh, terraformed and colonized Mars. And so 
storm becomes like the regent of the planet Mars. And so it's just, again, looking at the politics there and there's questions like there's this other side of society that's, you know, for thousands of years has known nothing but war and how do they find peace? So it's, you know, it's pretty interesting and kind of philosophical and kind of on that topic makes me think that, you know, if they ever make more X-Men movies, the only possible option to play Storm is Beyonce. No <laughs> one else has her gravitas. I mean, she's been a queen. She was married to T'Challa at, at one point in the comics. So it's, there is no one else. Like the, the, the movies so far have never really captured Storm. Uh, and I think that's the only way that you could do it. Um, and so that actually also does lead into my, my little desolation for this week. And, you know, as you mentioned, all the announcements at Comic-Con, uh, there was no announcement of anything about the X-Men, even though Disney now has the rights to it, other than they're bringing back the animated series from the 90s on Disney+. Plus, But uh, nothing about the movies, and they kind of laid out their plans until 2025. So it's going to be even longer than that before we get to see X-Men on the big screen again. So that's that's the only thing that disappointed me this week. Any Anything you wanted to mention for your desolation? Yes, this is not comic book related, though I need okay. to connect with you offline about comic books because my five-year-old daughter this week asked me if I would buy her a comic book about Wonder Woman. So okay. I did find something age appropriate for a five-year-old, but I definitely need your, I need your expertise. Okay. My pop culture desolation most recently um, was that Netflix released a film adaptation of the Jane Austen novel Persuasion. This is my favorite Jane Austen novel. I read it every year in the fall. It is a masterpiece. It's her best novel, in my opinion. Um, so I had some hopes for a film version of it because we haven't had one in a while. Those hopes were somewhat dashed when it was announced that the American actress Dakota Johnson would be playing the lead character. So that was a bit of a harbinger of doom for Jane Austen fans. <laughs> Your wife is also a Jane Austen fan. So that's something mm -hmm. we share. Um, so the film came out and it was it was so bad that it was fun. It was fun to watch because it was so bad. Wow. Um, they tried to update it where these characters are in the 18 teens in England, right? And they look like they're in the 1800s, but then they're using contemporary slang. Um, they're using all these contemporary expressions. They completely changed the character into like a 21st century wine mom, you know, that, that idea mm. of the, you know, I'm, I'm suffering, but I've got my wine. So it's all going to be okay. Yeah, probably listening so, to Beyonce. I think she would be, I think this version of the character would be misunderstanding everything Beyonce says, but mm. so that was yes. really disappointing. Um, my academic background is in the 18th century British novel. So, you know, my professional sensibilities were offended. Um, but if it was going to be terrible, at least it was terrible in a way that I was just cackling the entire time. Um, but it was really disappointing because that novel has not gotten a really excellent film adaptation in, in several decades, if ever, depending on who you ask. So that was a bummer. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for sharing. So there you have some things maybe to check out, maybe some things to not check out. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> Well, as we close, you know, we always need to take a moment to get serious. You know, we talked a lot today about justice, about doing what's right. And so 
as you listeners are listening to this podcast, I hope that you will do what is right. I hope that you will have the courage and the knowledge that you know you need to do what's right, to share this on social media, to give us a five-star review. You know, we don't, we don't do the retributive justice thing. We don't believe that's who God is. And so that's not who we are. So I'm not going to come after you, but I will be disappointed. I expect better of you. So do the right thing, people. All right. Well, uh, thanks again, Christina, for being with us this week. As always, uh, the show is produced and edited by me. Our theme song is Be Thou My Vision from the 8-Bit Hymnal by Mr. Tyler Larson. You can follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Pop Culture Pastor for more content. You are now dismissed. Go in peace. <laughs>